0: Testing, one, two, three. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. With COVID in the city now uh, and life being changed, one of the things that has changed, uh, perhaps for the better, is the number of people using bicycles. In fact, there were shortages at bicycle stores of buying bikes. Uh, So I thought it would be an appropriate time to run a past episode, specifically New York and our bicycles, the history of bikes and cycling. They've actually been around for 200 years. Here it is. Hope you enjoy the episode, and we'll see you again next week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halsted Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods and their amazing history. On most programs, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its energy, texture, and current vibe. What makes something particular about New York special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofits, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part of the city or theme about New York and its history that it's not that's not about one particular neighborhood, it could be one of our fine urban parks, uh, an extraordinary museum. Maybe the transit system or the city in an age of a particular social or political movement. Uh, Each show is available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. Today is one of those special programs. We will be exploring something very special in New York, cycling and bicycles in our great city, both past history and present texture of cycles and the people who ride them. And we're very lucky to have two special guests today. My first guest is Evan Fritz. Evan is an associate professor of history at James Madison University and is the author of Two books. One we're going to be talking about tonight, On Bicycles, A 200-Year History of Cycling in New York City. It's published by Columbia University Press. And The Cycling City, Bicycles in Urban America in the 1890s. That's published by the University of Chicago Press. Evan is also the guest curator of Cycling in the City. It's an exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York, which I actually saw yesterday. His research has been featured in The New Yorker, Slate, National Geographic, and The New York Times. Evan holds a Ph.D. in History from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and a Master's in History and a Certificate in Archival Management from New York University. And as we are welcoming Evan Frist to Rediscovering New York. Evan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Evan, uh, by the way, is not in New York. He's uh, part, part Southern. Evan, are you in Maryland or Virginia right now?
1: I'm currently in Harrisonburg, Virginia.
0: Okay, so it's Virginia. Um. We're very lucky to be speaking with Evan on the show about two very different ways of communicating the history of bicycles in New York City. Because Evan is the curator of an exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York and also an author of the book on bicycles. Um, Evan, are you from New York originally?
1: I was born in in New York to uh, New Yorkers, but was mostly reared in. Suburban Maryland, but returned to New York uh, for graduate school. So I lived roughly half my life in New York City.
0: I want to ask you a bit about your educational background, only because I'm—I uh, studied history at Vassar and like to think of myself as an, as an amateur historian uh, at the Graduate Center. What part? What specialty in history did you study?
1: So I studied American history, and particularly, uh, my major field was. Urban history. Um, so it required me to study the history of cities uh, beyond the United States, but mostly focused on American urban history in the 19th and 20th century.
0: Hmm. How did you develop your interest in bicycle history and uh, more specifically in the history of bicycles and cycling in our fair city, New York?
1: Yeah, so it stemmed from my interest in urban history and from living in an urban environment in New York City. So uh, I was just always kind of fascinated by cities and particularly city planning and urban design, thinking about how the cities came to look the way that they do, uh, and particularly interested in questions of mobility and transportation and the intersection of transportation and urban design. So, how is it that we move around the cities the way that we do? How are our choices constrained by political decisions made perhaps uh, many moons ago uh, that encourage us or discourage us to move through the city uh, in one way or, or another? Um, you know, this kind of plays out in very big ways, but also in, in small ways. I was always. Uh, loved riding the subways as a kid and even in graduate school Um, and just fascinated by the kind of decisions people make in terms of uh, which stairwell to exit and whether or not to take the escalator, the elevator, uh, or the stairs. and A lot of these decisions uh, that we think of as kind of our own decisions are in many ways shaped by geography, shaped by the physical landscape, shaped by the placement of uh, the stairs and the elevator. Um, so it, it begged the question, or, or I was thinking about as I was living in New York, um, you know, why aren't there more cyclists here in New York? What ways has the city uh, come to accommodate, but also to discourage cycling uh, and promote these other ways of mobility? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I love the introduction uh, and the jacket of the book, and I have to read it for our listeners. It it really is a great way to introduce the book and also the exhibition. Um, Subways and Yellow Taxis, of who cyclists are. And, of course, we are not only going to cover the history of the cycles, but of the people who rode them and the city that accommodated, tolerated, sometimes hated, and now certainly celebrate them. Um, Before we actually get into the specifics of cycling in New York, um, as a historian, I wanted to ask you: What are some of the sources that you use to do your research? And were there any sources that you felt were new and different that that no one else had uncovered in in writing about the subject?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the one of the advantages of writing a, a book like this is that um, there aren't a whole lot of other people who have written uh, about it, at least with this kind of specificity. So. Um, I was able to visit a lot of different archives and and even some private collections uh, and see a lot of different things. But the range of sources, both in the exhibition uh, and the the sources I use for research for the exhibition and the book, um, vary quite tremendously from government documents and legal documents about court cases and laws involving... Cycling to visual material. Uh, And the exhibition has a lot of great photographs of cyclists from different eras and drawings from eras in which uh, pre photography. Um, And also uh, artifacts um, that both help me think about the history of the bicycle uh, in terms of not just displaying it for a museum exhibition, but also in thinking about how its design changed over time and how that facilitated. Uh, new ideas in in urban planning so uh... one of my favorite um, uh, sources if you if you will was um, a manhattan mini storage uh, way uptown in the very northern part of of manhattan um, Were the archives of the century road club uh, association which is an old uh... new york city bike club and uh, they had Heaps of materials, boxes, banners, uh, but also some really interesting artifacts, including this giant uh, wooden roller on which people in the early, 90, in the early 20th century, uh, cyclists, especially in the off-season, would ride stationary on top of these rollers, um, but it would require them to balance like they were riding on the road. Um, and I just sort of found myself poking around these dusty archives um, and meeting individual collectors and, and and seeing things that I'm fairly certain, uh, very certain, no historian has ever seen. So that was very exciting.
0: Well, from a very amateur historian to a professional one, um, I did some research when I was living in England in the 1980s, early 80s. And, uh being able to just w- wade through archives and, and smell and see and blow dust off. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to do that and not just to rely on the electronic medium. Uh, how long did it take you to do the research for the book?
1: Um, I spent about three years, uh, I would say, working on uh, the research for the book, which included, you know, again, not only visiting um, the private collectors and their materials, but spending a fair bit of time at the New York Public Library, the New York Historical Society, the Brooklyn Public Library, the municipal archives, um, all of which had different kinds of collections that spoke to uh, different kinds of issues over time. And since the the book and the exhibition covers 200 years, um, it was often the case that that small collections were were held here and there. Mm.
0: Uh, we're going to take a short break in in a couple of minutes, but before we do, uh, before we get into the the history of cycling in the city, I wanted to ask you a couple of general questions. Uh, when was the first bicycle actually invented? <laughs> Not quite as we know it today, but 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 the general principle of it, you know, being on wheels and using your own your own energy to propel.
1: Yeah, well, that's actually. Um uh, a more complicated question than it might seem. So one has to define the bicycle, um, and and people who are um, really invested in bicycle history sometimes debate this, this question themselves. Um, but I would say going back to about 1817 uh, in Germany is the creation, or at least the kind of predecessor, of the bicycle as we know it. Uh, and it has two wheels and um, the main distinction or the reason that some people would say it's not a bicycle is that it doesn't have any pedals so it's sort of like a balance bike that toddlers might use today where they would push off the ground with their feet and once they got going or if they were going downhill they could coast and put their feet up on the bicycle um, and they could ride down uh, the hill um, but they couldn't go Uphill very well at all, um, but that's generally regarded as the kind of at least antecedent to the bicycle. Mm.
0: Yeah, one more general question: When, uh, when were gears actually uh, put on bicycles so you can uh, uh, get more for your for your foot uh, energy?
1: Yeah. So even when when pedals were first uh, added to bicycles uh, in the 1860s, they were often uh, attached directly to the to the front um, wheels um, and so they were sort of direct driven um, but by the time we get to the late 19th century uh, with the popularity of the, the safety bicycle uh, there's the sort of modern you know gear system as we know it and the modern design of the bicycle is pretty much cemented although most of those bikes, only
0: have uh, a single gear. All right. Uh, Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Evan Friss, author of On Bicycles, A 200-Year History of Cycling in New York City, published by Columbia University Press, and also co-curator of the museum presently at the Museum of the City of New York called Cycling and the City. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator.
0: Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc.
1: 24 hours a day.
0: We're back. You're tuned to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And our first guest is Evan Friss, author and curator. Uh, Evan, when did we first see, when did New Yorkers first see bicycles or their predecessors on our city streets?
1: So the first ones arrive in the spring of 1819, so exactly, almost exactly 200 years from, from right now. Wow. Um, and they, they arrive and cause quite um, an interest. Uh, among New Yorkers who see them as somewhat of a novelty, but there are some New Yorkers who are beginning to wonder if these bicycle-like contraptions might actually change New York uh, and be a useful tool of transportation. But for the most part, they're seen as a a recreation tool and a kind of silly contrivance, and when they first arrive, uh, New Yorkers begin to think about how to monetize them Uh, and one of the first uh, people to import them uh, in fact does a public demonstration on his velocipede as they called them uh, at the time and charges spectators uh, a fee for watching him and others begin to think about manufacturing them uh, and, and there are a number of them probably a small number of them that are being ridden uh, in lower Manhattan, which is where most New Yorkers lived at the time. Uh, but only a few months later, by August, uh, lawmakers banned the Velocipedes from most everywhere that they were being used. Uh, banned them
0: like through an act of the council or the uh, whatever the council was called back then. They actually banned yeah, bicycles? Yeah, so
1: it was an official ordinance uh, that banned bicycles from Bowling Green, uh, Battery Park and, and City Hall Park, as well as uh, the sidewalks, which, uh, according to the documents that we have, were basically everywhere that they were being used. Um, and the lawmakers don't suggest why they were being banned, but probably it had to do with the notion that these uh, vehicles and their riders were reckless uh, and endangered other New Yorkers and, and that their value was. Um, Minimal uh, And one interesting thing about the ordinance is that in a way that it, it dates this era, it uh, even has uh, a line in it that says if a slave uh, is violating this ordinance, then if a slave is caught riding on a velocipede, uh, then the slave's owner is due to pay the fine.
0: Wow. And that was in 1819 when we still had slavery in New York. Um, yeah. you know, this reminds me of something funny when I was in uh, uh, Herculaneum in Italy it's uh, sort of a sister uh, uh, destroyed city to Pompeii uh, it was so well preserved that there was a sign on the, on the wall under the ash uh, and it said that if um, uh, I think it was a slave either urinated in public or I think it was urinating in public the slave could be beaten but if it was a free person uh, they could only be fined <laughs> so it's interesting yeah. to see that the difference in the laws you know, pervades uh, oceans and millennia I could see why they would have banned. They would have wanted to ban these these devices from sidewalks because uh, we kind of do the same thing. Uh, When did bicycles become more of a mode of transportation for people in the city rather than just a leisure activity?
1: Yeah. So in the in the eighteen sixties, in the late eighteen sixties, a different kind of velocipede. This time with pedals attached, and and more so like our modern bicycles take off uh, in great popularity, but they're also largely used in the city parks and ridden in indoor velocipede rinks, especially during the winter, and so it's still largely recreational. Um, But it's not until the great big bicycle boom of the late 19th century, when the modern bicycle uh, is essentially born and looks like the kind of bicycles that we would recognize today, uh, that bicycling takes off. And although it's still primarily a social and recreational device, uh, a large number of New Yorkers are using bicycles uh, for utilitarian purposes, including messengers uh, who are delivering telegraph messages often, including bicycle policemen, who are hunting down criminals. On and this was bicycles. in
0: the 1890s that we had bicycle policemen. Uh,
1: yes. Wow. So Teddy Roosevelt, who was commissioner of the New York City Police Force, uh, employed a squadron of bicycle cops uh, whom he liked very much uh, to target criminals, including reckless bicyclists, by the way. Um And then there were uh, a whole host of New Yorkers who used the bicycle as a means to to get from A to B, whether that meant um, going to somewhere to recreate, you know, uh, Coney Island uh, or uh, a New York Giants game up at the polo grounds, uh, but also using the bicycle as a form of transportation for work uh, as a commuting device.
0: Hmm. What was Bicycle Row?
1: So in the 1890s, bicycles were were so popular that the number of bike shops uh, exploded through the city, um, but were many of them concentrated in a particular district. So in Lower Manhattan, near City Hall Park, uh, were a concentration of bicycle shops where there were dozens of these stores and cyclists would go down there to not only buy bicycles and have their bikes repaired. But it served as a kind of social hub for cyclists to hang out, to talk shop, to talk about their rides. Uh, and it was a, a, a little neighborhood, uh, if you will, or at least a congregation of three or four blocks that had so many bike shops on it that it became defined uh, as a cycling neighborhood.
0: Uh, it sounds a little bit like Radio Row in, uh, uh, before the World Trade Center went up in the, in the, in the 50s.
1: Yeah, and sure. New York is, of course, famous for, you know, the garment district and the flower district and the diamond district, uh, of course, you know, the financial district. So for a brief period of time, anyway, there was something akin to a bike district.
0: There were some interesting personalities uh, in the 1890s in New York and bicycles. Who was Arthur Hyde?
1: Yeah, so Arthur Hyde was... Uh, a fascinating new yorker insofar as he kept a wheeling diary before you asked about some of the great sources that i found this is foremost among them so hyde was in his late teens and early 20s in the mid 1890s and for three summers in a row he had a notebook that his grandfather had given him for christmas uh, that he used to document every single one of his rides how far he went where he went um, which streets he turned, what were the road conditions like, who was he riding with. Um, but he also he documents the rides with a bit of flavor, uh, giving a real sense of the atmosphere of the 1890s cycling city. Uh, and it's evident that he uses the bicycle to commute to work. At the time, he's employed by Tiffany & Company, which has h- its headquarters near Union Square. And he lives on the Upper East Side in uh, the mid-80s, just off of Central Park. Um, And he rides to work. I noticed that he rides to work not directly, uh, but he kind of zigzags his way downtown. And at first it wasn't obvious why he did this, but then I got hold of an asphalt map from the period, and it became clear that he was choosing to go somewhat out of his way uh, to favor pleasant road surfaces. Uh, But he also makes clear that um, a, a number of things, including that um, the bicycle market becomes um, something of a kind of infatuation for a lot of people, sort of like gearheads we might think of them, who want the latest kind of technology. So over the course of three years, Hyde buys um, seven or eight different bicycles that he keeps for you know a handful of months, and then he trades it in for some new model and new kind of um, shiny, device that he that he soon falls in love with Um, and perhaps most interestingly of all he talks about how he uses the bicycle to meet women whether on long road trips that he takes and women that he meets on the road um, but he also he uses it within new york as a way to make calls uh, on various girls that he's interested in uh, and eventually he marries one of these these women that he takes out uh, by bicycle in the 1890s
0: Mm. Speaking of women and and bicycle pioneers in the culture of the city, um, we have Violet Ward. Who was Violet?
1: So she was a Staten Island resident uh, who grew up in the 1890s. She was then in her uh, late 20s. And she became something of what they called a new woman uh, who was very interested in in sports and um, was thinking about uh, being a New Yorker perhaps in a way different from some more traditional virtues. Getting married was not at the top of her list. She was interested in education. She was interested in politics and reform. And she was very interested in athletics, including golf, tennis, and most notably bicycles. So she gets the kind of bicycle bug uh, fever in the 1890s, bitten, And uh, she starts her own bike club for women, along with... One of her dear friends, Alice Austin, who later becomes a famous photographer. Uh, And they start this bike club, but she also starts a bike shop, uh, and later in the decade authors uh, a manual, a several hundred-page book called Bicycling for Ladies that is intended to promote cycling uh, as a useful endeavor for women and tries to make um, the prospect of becoming a cyclist less scary by breaking down the ways in which women can train to become cyclists, how they can learn how to ride a bike, but also how they can learn to understand how the bike works, how they can essentially become, you know, an amateur bike mechanic.
0: So bicycles actually fit into the empowerment of women. Did it? Did bicycles play any role in the, in the women's suffrage movement?
1: Yeah. so... You know, a lot of the great reformers of the 19th century, um, Susan B. Anthony, uh, most notably among them, and others often lauded the bicycle as this great emancipatory device. Um, And even from Violet Ward and other other women, it becomes evident that a lot of them felt like this was a means, Violet calls it a means of, quote, absolute freedom, uh, that it's some new way to move through the city. Um, and for women to feel like the city is, is opened up to them and they have the freedom of movement, they could travel farther, uh, and perhaps they can travel without a chaperone. But not everybody felt that way, including some other women. And there was one in particular, her name was Miss Charlotte Smith, who started a campaign to ban women uh, cyclists. And, and she saw two things happening at the same time. One, she saw this great increase in the number of women who were riding bicycles, but she also saw um, traditional values and and changing social mores, um, and in her mind, declining values and morals. And so these were linked together in a way uh, that she blamed the bicycle for for promoting uh, promiscuity among women, for promoting women to travel on chaperones and so she starts a bicycle brigade which are essentially women on bikes who are going undercover and taking notes about how late women are staying out who they're riding with whether or not they have a chaperone how oh they're behaving God.
0: sounds like a uh a an 1890s version of phyllis schlafly most of our listeners yes, know who she like was that. um yes one of my favorite pictures at the exhibition is a photograph of two women from their uh, from the way they're dressed. I think it's got to be the first decade of the last century. in front of Grant's tomb, and you know it's that early because there are no trees, and here they are the two of them on their bicycles, and they're actually uh, they have to be riding them because they're like they're balanced. Um, where When we come back, we're going to we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Evan Friss, author of On Bicycles a 200-year history of cycling in New York City, and Evan's also the co-curator of the exhibition presently at the Museum of the City of New York called Cycling in the City. We'll be right
1: back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
0: We're back with historian and curator Evan Friss. Uh, God, Evan, there's so much to talk about, and um, we have about 10 minutes left, so I want to fast forward a little bit. Um, uh, Someone who most New Yorkers would not equate having anything to to do with bicycles and the city is Robert Moses, who some people know planned many of the city's highways. But he actually did cross paths, well, pun intended, I suppose, with uh, cycling and bicycles, didn't
1: he? Yeah, so... In the summer of 1938, Robert Moses uh, makes public his plan for uh, bicycle facilities across the five boroughs. Uh, And in his plan, he proposes to build 58.75 miles of bike paths, which is really a startling amount, considering that at the time there were essentially no bicycle paths in all of New York. Technically, there was... Uh, about five and a half miles from the old Coney Island cycle path that was built in the 1890s, uh, but it wasn't really very usable for cyclists. So here, Moses, of course, the famous auto champion, proposes building bicycle paths, frankly, on a scale that no other New Yorker ever has, at least considering um, where they were at the moment. But the details of the plan also make clear that he is, in fact, quite an auto champion, and that part of the impetus for the plan was to keep bicycles off of his parkways so that motorists could could drive uh, uninterrupted and without obstacles. Uh, And it also suggests the way that he thinks of bicycles, which are recreational vehicles, not transportation tools. And so he, he builds these paths within city parks and alongside parkways, but they're not part of some larger network. They're not meant to get from A to B they're often rather short stretches that are designed um, for people to have fun and to ride a bicycle, uh, but to, of course, avoid uh, the roadways where cars belong. Hmm.
0: Did the depression impact the use of bicycles in New York?
1: Yeah, so there's an an uptick in the 1930s where automobiles are increasingly seen as expensive, of course, um, and bicycles are pitched as an affordable and viable alternative to cars. Um, And there are also some Hollywood movie stars who begin to ride the bikes in the 1930s, and it takes on a kind of coolness uh, for a number of years, particularly with young adults in New York uh, in the 1930s. And so that's also driving Moses uh, to push his plan, uh, is that there is this uptick in interest, uh, and cyclists are, are asking him for facilities.
0: Hmm. Well, moving to the post-war era, I want to I get to the bicycle ban in a second, but in the middle of it all, in 1973, I found this interesting piece of info. The city's Department of Transportation described the bicycle as, quote, the stepchild of the transportation world. What was going on with city planners and the city government at that time that would have them make that judgment about bicycles in the 70s of old times?
1: Yeah. So one of the, the fascinating thing about bicycles is its kind of adaptability, um, and it's it's hard to pin down what is a bicycle for. Is it for recreation, transportation? Is it utilitarian, or is it social? Who is a cyclist? And the answers to these questions are are always changing. Um, but when they describe it as the stepchild of the transportation world, in particular about how they don't know where to put it on the road. Uh, it doesn't seem to belong on the sidewalks, even though cyclists share some traits and characteristics with pedestrians, and it doesn't seem to them to belong on the roadway, even though it shares some characteristics with other vehicles, namely cars. Uh, but it's this kind of one-off device um, that moves at a different speed than walkers and cars and um, offers a different kind of perspective, but is very difficult to categorize and difficult to plan for. And this is in the wake um, of yet a kind of another mini-boom in cycling uh, as the oil crisis begins, as environmentalist movement takes off, uh, as more New Yorkers begin to, to put for bicycles um, as a clean and polluting-free vehicle.
0: Mm. Well, one of New York's mayors didn't quite think that way. Uh, 1977 comes around, Ed Koch is elected mayor of our great city. And um, before we talk about what he tried to do with cycles, I want to read a quote from Denisha Smith in New York Magazine. This is from 1986. Uh, Despised as bicycle messengers may be, by all but their employers, and dangerous as they are, they are fast-becoming folk heroes, the Pony Express riders of the 80s. But uh, Ed Koch didn't quite see it that way, did he?
1: No, he did not, Uh, and he was not alone. Um, And he, an increasing number of people, saw the messengers as outlaws, as villains, as adding to the chaos of the city, uh, and as people who needed to be controlled. And so even though earlier in the administration he had been somewhat of a bike advocate, uh, pushing for bike lanes... Uh, both regular painted lanes, but also protected on-street bike lanes, uh, in 1980. And he he was a strong advocate for bicycles during the the transit strike in which uh, the subways and buses were shut down, and he saw the bicycle as the ideal solution. By the time we get to 1987, uh, he's cooled uh, to many of the bike advocates, uh, and he begins a campaign to ban bike messengers from midtown Manhattan. And it's pretty bold stroke. Um, during the week, during the day, on three midtown avenues, all bicycles would be banned. But the real intent was clear to stop the messengers who biked for work during the day and were delivering legal contracts, modeling portfolios, blueprints, signed contracts, and other things from, from one skyscraper to another. Um, and it set off a really fascinating battle between the bike messengers themselves and also a new group of bike advocates uh, who came to their defense and helped organize these daily protests, marched through the streets where they demanded uh, that Koch back off of his um, ban and also, I think, clearly demonstrated that the ban was meant to Target the messengers, most of whom were African American or Latino, uh, and was was unfair in doing that and that this was a, a kind of vulnerable population that needed to be protected uh, rather than be maligned. Mm.
0: And some people said that it, that ban was it disproportionately affected the livelihood of people of color, of African-Americans, Latino people. But something tells me that that would not have quite bothered Ed Koch uh, due to the larger goals that he was trying to uh, achieve uh, as it might other people. Um, we don't have a lot of time left on the segment, Evan, but I do want to talk about the bicycle lanes in the city. You mentioned that Koch wanted to was thinking about instituting protected bicycle lanes in 1980. When were the first real designated bicycle lanes, or the first big movement to to create safe bike lanes for cyclists? Uh, when did it yeah, come so to I the city? I think
1: Koch's bike lanes um, are the kind of first modern bike lanes in New York, but there are actually some earlier ones, going back to the 1890s, and when uh, city politicians didn't have enough money to pave the whole street, uh, on occasion they would pave just sort of the gutter of the street or a few feet on the side of the street uh, in asphalt. And these would be ribbons that would stretch along a number of streets and were designed for the cyclists to be able to traverse roads that were otherwise unpaved. So these were essentially bike lanes, although they didn't call them, though, at the
0: time. Hmm. Well, in the, in the minute or so we have left, I want to ask you one other question. We talked a lot about the past— and a little bit about the present of, of bicycling in the city. Uh, looking in a crystal ball in the future, do you think that cycling in the city and bicyclists are going to be anything different than they are now?
1: Yeah, well, it seems you know New York is uh, still very crowded, even if even if it's just begun to maybe lose uh, a few inhabitants of late. But uh, it's an increasingly crowded city. There are more cars on the road. Than ever with Uber and, and Lyft and the other ride-hailing uh, services, and I think you know people have rightly expressed frustration with the overcrowding of the subways, uh, and congestion pricing is uh, I think a good first step to try to disincentivize people from riding in their cars. Uh, but in order for New York to continue to be an attractive, livable, sustainable uh, city, I think I think bicycles will have to be part of the solution moving forward.
0: Mm. Well, thank you. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Evan Frist, thank you so much for joining us from Harrisonburg, Virginia this evening. Evan is the author of On Bicycles, a 200 year history of cycling in New York City, and co-, co curates the present exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York called Cycling in the City. And it's up, I think, through October, isn't it?
1: Yep, through October 6th.
0: And definitely well worth a visit. Um, Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Um, when we come back, we're going to take a short break. When we do come back, we're going to be speaking with our second guest on Rediscovering New York. Stay tuned.
1: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
0: Talking Alternative.com We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735, and the law offices of Thomas Asiaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of the city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague and friend at Halstead. You can listen to Vince's show on Tuesday mornings, live at 9 a.m., and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman is our handle, and also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach my you can reach my office at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we have a special guest for our second uh, half. Some New Yorkers don't realize it, but this Sunday is the annual Five Borough Bike Tour that's organized by Bike New York, and we have a guest from the communication, from the Communications Department. Uh, our original guest, uh, John Orcutt, sadly, was in a minor accident. He's okay, but was unable to join us tonight. So we are pleased to welcome Laura Shepard, also from Bike New York. Laura grew up biking through the scenic parks and waterfronts of eastern Queens. She rode her first of many five borough bike tours when she was 14 and was thrilled to see so much of her city on her own power. Laura discovered her passion for bike advocacy when she joined the movement for a safer Queens Boulevard in 2017. Queens Boulevard was one of those uh, streets, big streets, that was recently added to our streets that uh, that have protected bike lanes. When the lane was installed, her bike became her primary mode of transportation. Now, Laura rides around and advocates for more protected bike lanes in Queens and around the city, and she actually bikes to Manhattan over the Queensboro Bridge. Laura helped organize the first women's ride on Queens Boulevard to highlight the gender gap in cycling and encourage others to try out her favorite bike lane. She loves her friends, her community, and the advances she's found through biking. Laura, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. What is Bike New York exactly?
3: So, Bike New York is a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to empower New Yorkers to transform their lives through bicycling. How did you
0: get involved with the organization? Because you've well, been there uh, a couple of months, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I rode my first five-bro bike tour when I was 14 years old. I've been uh, riding ever since, and uh, I. Got involved with Bike New York uh, through the course of um, the Safe Streets advocacy I was doing uh, previously with Queens Boulevard, Skillman and 43rd Avenues, and uh, some other campaigns around the city.
0: Uh, just Curious, how did you find the position? Did, did you respond to something, or did you hear about it through the grapevine?
3: Uh, I had actually met John at uh, at previous events. Ah, okay,
0: great. What's the origin of the Five Borough Bike Tour?
3: The ride began in 1977. It was a collaboration between the American Youth Hostels and the New York City Board of Education. It began when a group of high schoolers was challenged to ride uh, into all five boroughs in one day. Uh, the first substantial ride included 250 people, and it's grown tremendously since then. Well,
0: 250 sounds like a small number, but that was when, that was when it first started. Um, what's the route for the bike tour?
3: So the route starts downtown near the Battery, um, comes uptown on 6th Avenue, travels through Central Park, then through Harlem, into the Bronx for a bit, uh, then dips back into Manhattan. Comes down the FDR Drive. Uh, we go over the Queensboro Bridge. Your uh, favorite bridge? Yes, my <laughs> favorite bridge. Uh, get to take over the upper level, which is really exciting and has beautiful views. And we go up to Astoria Park, where we have a great rest stop with lots of great snacks. Comes down through Long Island City, and then we go over the uh, the Pulaski Bridge into Greenpoint, Williamsburg, down uh, the Brooklyn waterfront through Brooklyn Heights, and then uh, we get on the BQE and uh, head toward uh, toward the Verrazano into Staten Island. Um, in Staten Island, we have the Finnish Festival at Fort Wadsworth, and uh, then. Everybody rides up to the ferry, and uh, back to Manhattan.
0: Back to Manhattan. Wow, that must be quite a celebration. Fort Wadsworth, for those of you who have never been, is just under the Verrazano Bridge on Staten Island. And actually, it's a very old fort. It was built, I believe, right before the War of 1812, and it's considered a second system fort. Um must be pretty crowded having all those bicyclists on the ferry on the way back. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> it's it staggered. Has the route changed at all since it was since the bike ride started in seventy seven?
3: Uh not. So. I think the the mileage has uh, adjusted slightly, but the route's been fairly consistent. It mostly goes along the waterfront, uh, five great bridges. It's the, as of now, it's the only day of the year when cyclists are allowed to ride on the Verrazano Bridge, for example. And
0: uh, Oh, otherwise you have to walk across it with a bike? Uh, or no, you, there's, or no, you walking there's no walking either. There's no walking either, okay. It's a
3: Robert Moses Bridge. Uh, ah, okay.
0: <laughs> I've just learned something new about, about bridges in yeah, this Yeah, the
3: group in South Brooklyn is, and uh, Staten Island is uh, trying to change that and create a loop around the harbor. Uh
0: I know you haven't been on most of the bike rides. Um, for people who've been on the bike ride, who've been doing the bike tour for decades, what are some of the neighborhoods that that would have changed, that they would have seen change the most?
3: So I'd say uh, the Brooklyn and Queens waterfront, Long Island City, Greenpoint, Williamsburg. Uh, even just 10, 15 years ago, uh, on, a, on the first Sunday in May, uh, those neighborhoods were kind of sleepy. Uh, it was mostly warehouses, and uh, it's really changed a lot. It's become more residential and commercial. Uh, we've, we've seen some high-rises go up in some places, and there are a lot more people around along the route.
0: And more cyclists as well. How many, how yeah. many cyclists participate in the ride now?
3: thirty two thousand. Wow. So yeah. it's more than
0: a hundred times what it was in that first ride of seventy seven.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's really popular. It's you know one day a year and forty car free miles.
0: One interesting thing I heard about the bike ride is that the route's free of motorized traffic. You go you you cycle far more than than, than the people who do the marathon. How is that possible, that throughout all these routes, you don't encounter motorized traffic?
3: So that's thanks to uh, tremendous coordination with uh, the City of New York and various city agencies, including the Department of Transportation, the Police Department, the Fire Department, Parks and Recreation, citywide events, and uh, just uh, this. Oh, the Central Park Conservancy, the Office of Emergency Management, and Sanitation. Uh, it's... It's really fantastic.
0: The bike ride, by the way, is next Sunday, May fifth. Uh, people want to be along the route. What time does it actually start?
3: There Was it staggered starting? Staggered start times. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, typically pretty early in the morning.
0: And what time do the first and the last bikers get to get over the bridge to Fort Wadsworth? It sounds like a fun thing to go and see.
3: Uh yeah so i'd say the uh the first start wave probably makes it by nine thirty, ten o'clock or so and uh see uh at fort wadsworth but there are people there till like th- you know coming in uh till three four o'clock or so
0: mm. Now, you mentioned that registration for this bike for individual participation is closed for the Sunday. Yes. But you did mention that there was a way for people to get engaged if they wanted to.
3: Yeah. Uh, if you want to uh, join a charity team, uh, you can look at our website and register with one of our charity p- partners by visiting uh, the Expo, which is uh, this Friday and Saturday, May 3rd and 4th. And you can register in person at the Expo with okay. one of our charity partners.
0: Where is the Expo?
3: Uh, it's at basketball city that's two ninety nine south Street on the lower east side just ah. yeah
0: big did you have are there lots of vendors there with bicycles and repairs and all that stuff too like yeah,
3: yeah yeah so it's a um tremendous assortment of exhibitors uh some are local entrepreneurs and some are big brands uh we have a large uh delegation from uh the Taiwanese bicycling association uh Vendors are going to demonstrate some of the latest gear, gadgets, even electric bicycles. Uh, There's also a large tourism contingent uh, showing off uh, the latest um, itineraries and even coordinating logistics for uh, bicycle tourism. And there's also going to be a lot of activity. Uh, We have a zone called the hub which where we're going to have stationary bike races, and slow bike races, prizes, plinko boards, give up giveaways and uh more fun stuff.
0: Oh wow. What's yeah. what's the website address for for bike New York?
3: It's bike.nyc. Oh. Really easy to remember. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just like rediscovering New nyc and talkradio.nyc. Um but Bike New York just doesn't only organize the five borough bike ride. You're actually a nonprofit that has that has Programming throughout the year. What are the programs aside from the ride do you organize?
3: So, we do bike skills classes for children and adults. Uh, some of our most popular are Learn to Ride. Uh, last year, we taught bike skills to 28,000 New Yorkers. Some of those were Learn to Ride classes, some of those were bike skills, bike mechanic classes. We have a, a program called Recycle a Bicycle where uh, we teach uh, bike mechanic skills and actually refurbish donated bicycles uh, to um, uh, distribute to people in the community.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking about bike safety, Laura, um, could you share with our listeners some of the basic elements of what good bike safety would be in an urban area like New York?
3: Uh Well, first and foremost, uh, more protected bike lanes. Uh, They really do make a big difference uh, because they help allocate the street, uh, you know, and define space for pedestrians, for cyclists, and for vehicles and help prevent collisions. Uh, Streets with protected bike lanes show remarkable safety gains for all road users, not just cyclists. Uh, in large part for pedestrians because they help shorten crossing distances and um, increase visibility, and also protected bike lanes uh, help a wider range of cyclists feel comfortable on the road. Uh, we try to get infrastructure that's safe for road users who uh, of all ages and abilities. We we like to say eight to eighty. That's a good uh, catch-all term.
0: Uh huh. Um. In in the minute or so we have left, aside from the bike lanes, what are things that uh our listeners could do potentially to, to help increase awareness of bike safety? Because you know, a lot of people get hurt on bikes in the city and that's a that's a that's a horrible thing.
3: Right. So uh I think one of some of the main things people can do, uh, it's just generally uh be aware, be alert, uh especially uh drivers should uh Always pass at safe distances, look before you open a car door, look before you turn, Uh, don't double park, don't block bike lanes. Uh, There's actually a lot people can do to increase safety.
0: And I'm assuming a lot of the information is available on your website, Mm bike.nyc. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming. Our second guest has been Laura Shepard, part of bike.nyc, sponsor of the Five Borough Bike Tour, which is happening this Sunday. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Well, thank you for joining our journey today on Cycling in the City. We wish John Orcutt, your colleague, the best of health in his recovery. Uh, If you have comments or questions about the show or would like to get on the show's mailing list, you can email me, Jeff, at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram, uh, Jeff Goodman NYC. I'd like to thank our sponsors again, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the Law Offices of Thomas Siakka. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. Our producer is Ralph Storier, who, like John Orcutt, is recovering from an accident, but best health to Ralph. Our engineer is Sam Liebowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Theergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on TalkRadio.nyc. And at 9 p.m., Noreen Sumter is back with Beyond Potential. And next week, join us for our next episode, which will be about St. George and Staten Island. Thanks for listening.
1: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got
0: you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator.